And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Susan Glasser grew up in a household that was steeped in journalism, and it's been the passion she's pursued for the rest of her life. Through her years at Roll Call in the Washington Post, at Foreign Policy Magazine and Politico, now as a weekly columnist for The New Yorker and a commentator on CNN, Susan's knowledgeable, incisive insights are always worth hearing. I sat down with her recently to talk about her career in journalism and the state of the world. Susan Glasser, so good to see you. Happy to be with you. Um, I didn't realize until I was preparing for this conversation that... um, you have uh, such an interesting lineage. Your grandfather worked on the testing of the polio vaccine. Uh, talk to me about the glassers and <laughs> both well, sides of your family. I can see you've done really excellent research, actually. I was just thinking about my grandfather over this weekend. A uh, former colleague of yours from the Obama White House, Norm Eisen, has written a book yes. uh, about his time uh, as the U.S. ambassador to Czechoslovakia under President I read Obama. your comment, which was to be yeah. about that, it and was then it got sort of sidelined by the events of the day. It was the day of the Manafort and Cohen. Uh, wasn't that the day that the exactly. best thing broke? Yeah. And he and I happened to be on the phone in that crazy hour. Remember one of those, like, you know, never-to-be-forgotten like Trump police, news cycles. Yes. So anyways, long-winded way of saying my grandfather, courtesy of that book of Norm Eisen's, which is about sort of this incredible story of Prague uh, in the 20th century. Um, I never knew this, but my brother was recently Googling, uh, and he found my grandfather died in 1995. Uh, He was the last of the New Deal Democrats. We used to say that it was the Republican takeover of Congress that killed him. Uh, But my grandfather during World War II was an official of the International Red Cross, and he devoted his career to public health, including after the war he worked uh, for the Polio Foundation. But he took this incredible journey around – post-war Czechoslovakia immediately after uh, the defeat of Nazi Germany. None of us knew anything about this. And my brother found this obscure article uh, on the internet. Uh, my grandfather really, of course, was a pre-internet era guy. Uh, yes. And, you know, in which he described, like, driving around, uh, you know, in this vehicle. He had guards assigned to him. And he was going to places that had not seen a single outsider, aside from the two occupying armies, uh, in, in a which decade. Which probably made them a bit suspicious. That's right. But journalism, uh, you know, was something that... Uh, uh, I got a love of from my father, uh, uh, and my parents actually always worked together. They were uh, the founders of the Legal Times newspaper yes. here in uh, Washington, and I was been lucky enough to be a journalist uh, and to want to be a journalist. Uh, and what, what, what led them to that to that pursuit? Were they journalists? Were they journalists from the beginning? Or that's a good question. Uh, my dad wanted to be a reporter more than anything. Uh, But my grandfather, the one I just mentioned, (laughs) insisted that he go to law school. Uh, And so he went to law school, and I think he practiced law for about six months at most, uh, right before I was born. Uh, And then my mother, meanwhile, was working for uh, a business that did, like, conferences and and seminars uh, and the like. And my dad said he hated uh, what he was doing. He went to work with her. They became publishers at a young age of the New York Law Journal and basically formed a whole career out of legal and business publishing without actually using that law degree uh, that my grandfather forced on him. And the Legal Times reported on litigation. And what, what, what was, tell, tell me. 
Well, you know, actually, I learned a lot about publishing that's even applicable to this sort of internet era, I think, from my parents. The Legal Times was a, was a trade publication, and it was devoted to kind of the internal mechanics of law and eventually lobbying, you know, in the nation's capital. This is a city of lawyers, after all, in Washington. Yes. They were never based here. Uh, they were based outside of New York, but they came here uh, a lot when I was growing up. And, you know, it was kind of like roll call. Montclair, New Jersey. Right? Yeah, that's right. So it was kind of like roll call, but for lawyers, uh, you know, or yeah. like Politico in a way, in yeah. a pre-internet way. Uh, very entrepreneurial at a time when, you know, the Chicago Tribune that you came up through or the Washington Post, yeah. uh, that general interest uh, sort of Macy's approach uh, to journalism was was already beginning to fragment. And there was a sense that people needed more specialized reporting and information around their professional fields. Well, and they apparently made a go of that. Yeah. And, and by the way, they're still working. They're turning 75 years old this year. Uh, my mother, I just left her uh, working away on on conference calls, she, you know, they don't uh, publish a newspaper anymore, of course, uh, yes. but they're still put on uh, legal seminars in the lake. That's great. That's great. And you went to Andover, uh, you and you, journalism became something uh, uh, of a passion for you there as well. I mean, you had an inspiring teacher, I'm told, one you, you shared with George W. Bush. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I went away to high school for the last two years uh, only, which is, you know, an interesting and kind of challenging thing to do. Uh, but Why did you? Well, you know, I don't know. I got it in my head. My, you know, my parents were not super thrilled on the idea. I was the oldest of four children. I was ready to <laughs> Want to get out, uh, huh? Yeah, and it was, a, it, academically, it's a fantastic school and I had an incredible education there uh, and I did have this famous English teacher uh, at Andover Mr. Lyons uh, who taught constitutional law uh, and was the advisor to the school newspaper the Philippian I George W. Bush I believe has said that he was his favorite teacher he is by the way a lot older than me I yeah. just want to be clear on that <laughs> uh, probably Mr. Lyons so retired. he caught Mr. Lyons earlier in his exactly. career and you caught him later exactly. in his career yeah. exactly but I did do that and I you know I was hooked on journalism. I did it all through four years of college and uh, started working here in Washington at Roll Call Newspaper a week after I graduated from college. Yeah, you... Um, Where I met you, by the way. Yes. I, I, I remember. <laughs> um, and I remember seeing you in, in Moscow at well, but, as well, but we'll get, we'll get to that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I read that uh, one of the things that you wrote in college was a scathing review of Valentine's Day. <laughs> Valentine's Day from, a, from a, 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 a feminist perspective. Well, that's interesting. I probably haven't gone back and looked at my, my college <laughs> era writings in a while, but uh, I... It'll be in the, it'll sure be in it the volume. I'm sure it exists. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you went to Washington and you joined Roll Call. I did. I did. And, and uh, was it just... You were looking for a job in journalism, and that was a job that was available, or did there was was there something about because roll call was relatively new at the time, right? So I was really lucky again. Uh, you know, I think uh, it was my dad uh, who, when I was a freshman in college, I was looking for a summer internship, and he subscribed to the Washington Post uh, in print in those old days. They would send you 
uh, even if you lived over out of town, you know, and he would get a huge stack of, you know, <laughs> yeah. the week's n- newspapers. And I remember him going through them, you know, days late and, and flipping through them. And there was an article in the business section of the Washington Post in 1986 that said that Arthur Levitt, the chairman of the American Stock Exchange, yeah. uh, and Jim Glassman, who'd had a variety of, uh, you know, really great and interesting journalism jobs here, had teamed up. They decided to buy roll call newspaper, Arthur did. Uh, it was a, a rag. I mean, you must remember this uh, in a way. It was almost like a like a community newsletter, basically, except it was this very unique community on Capitol Hill. But it was literally like, here's this club meeting tonight, you know, the Chowder and Marching Society, <laughs> yeah. you know, from the days when members of Congress would live in these boarding houses up on Capitol Hill. It was outrageously sexist, by the way. They used to have their most famous feature, the guy who founded it was Sid Udane, uh, old former Congressional Hill staffer. Uh, in the 1950s, he founded this, 1954, I believe. And they would have a Hill pinup of the week every week on page two and it would be like a secretary posed like suggestively like you know a, on a desk it's uh, worse than saint uh, than valentine's day uh, much worse than valentine's yeah. day uh but at any rate that arthur and jim had this great idea to turn it into a real newspaper and an understanding that it was a unique audience that they could successfully sell for advertising undercut the washington post uh but that to do so they need to make it a must read they need to have so your great father reporting. was attracted to it as his business model, that he saw them adapting his business models, you were saying earlier. That's correct. And, of course, he loved politics, and so did I. And so I actually went to work there as an intern. Why did you love politics? That's a great question. Um, You mentioned that your grandfather was an old new dealer. He was. But but was there a lot of politics talked about in your house or— yeah, my father uh, and my grandfather loved politics. They had different visions of politics. My dad uh, was— not an unreconstructed New Dealer, and as I recall, you know, had plenty of disagreements with my grandfather. I do remember that my grandparents got to meet Eleanor Roosevelt as uh-huh. part of my grandfather's work with uh, what became the March of Dimes Foundation. Yeah. When they found the cure for polio, of course, that was a Huge. cause near and dear to the Roosevelts. Yeah. And Eleanor Roosevelt and, and Basil O'Connor, who had been FDR's law partner, uh, were the ones who were kind of leading uh, the March of Times at the time they found the vaccine, the cure, the cure for, for polio. And uh, my grandparents always told me the story of actually, you know, getting to meet Mrs. Roosevelt at the airport and take her around. And um, so that did make a big impression on me. But, you know, I saw it as uh, a lens through which to view American history. That's something that I was super interested in uh, in college and, and for many years thereafter. I was lucky to, to work at Roll Call. And so you did an intern, you did... Uh, internships at Roll Call? Were there several of them? Yeah, I worked there summer after my freshman year, summer after my junior year, and uh, they asked me to come back uh, to work there full-time after I graduated, and and I said yes. You know, um, that's how I started at the Tribune, Mm -hmm. was an internship, and I had other internships in college that I kind of hunted out at the Villager newspaper in New York City at the Hyde Park Herald, where I ended up being the political columnist when I was in college. Um, And these things are so formative. Uh, Just the opportunity at a young age to be exposed to a newsroom was so energizing. Even frowsy little newsrooms like they had at the Villager newspaper in Greenwich (laughs) Village in New York. So you you always planned then after your internships, you thought, I'm coming back. You know, I... I think I was lucky. I I could have been happy doing any number of things. And 
you know, I was sort of hooked on it uh, as soon as I worked there. I loved the project of really uh, breaking original news and the whole way in which uh, Jim Glassman, who was the editor as well as the publisher, I, I think he taught me so much about being an editor as well as being a yeah, Because reporter. you rose up the ranks pretty fast there. You became, I mean, I don't know how big the ranks were. <laughs> So. Well, they were expanding as I was there. I was the editor, uh, the managing editor of the, the college newspaper, uh, and I loved both being a reporter and being an editor uh, in college, and I think I've been lucky to carry that through with me. So I started both doing editing as well as reporting uh, at, at Roll Call. I did like politics more. I was more of a campaign person. I gravitated more towards the kind of stuff you were doing uh, then and, in fact, was lucky enough to land Illinois as one of my states that I covered for Roll Call, as opposed to the kind of inside Capitol Hill, inside the leadership type reporting that some of my colleagues who yeah. who I hired there and who went on to great things like, you know, Jim Fandahy and others, they were great. Uh, Juliet Alperin, uh, both of those people are people I hired when I was at Roll Call. They were great at the politics of Capitol Hill. You know, they understood here's this leadership staffer and here's how the speaker's office works. And, you know, that was really uh, the kind of reporting that they were great at. I found that I was much more interested in kind of the, the electoral map and the campaigns and the building blocks of American politics. I was really lucky that I got to cover the super wonky subject of redistricting and reapportionment. Which Turns out that stuff is important. Exactly. That really yeah. dictates the outcome, you yeah. know, in so many ways that people don't realize the structure of, of things. You, um, uh, and then you went to the Washington Post. And then I went to the Post. In 1998, and you went as the deputy national editor in charge of investigations. And a month later, after you arrived, a rather major story broke. Monica Lewinsky and... That's the Lewinsky right. scandal, and that fell under your purview. Yeah, I went to work there, and I thought I would be, you know, sort of supervising stories about the Clinton fundraising scandals and uh, uh, Al Gore and no controlling legal authority. But um, it was actually one week later. It, I started there in January uh. of 1998, uh, and of course, it was uh, January 20th, 21st that weekend. Uh, that the Monica story broke, uh, first on the Drudge Report, and then actually uh, it was three reporters at the Washington Post, including my future husband, Peter Baker, who I had not even met, uh, uh, who wrote the first story confirming the Star investigation. So Peter and I do like to say that we're the only good thing to have come out of the Monica Lewinsky uh, uh, affair. You, what, did, what did you learn from uh, from from? editing and and supervising the coverage of that story that is relevant, if at all, to what we see today. One of the things that interests me is to hear you talk about, I thought I'd be covering the fundraising scandal and Al Gore, no controlling legal authority, which is also a fundraising uh, issue and so on. And um, it speaks to the fact that, uh, you know, the, the current president likes to complain that he is somehow the victim of unprecedented scrutiny but that's sort of the job of of the of the free press that the founding fathers um envisioned which is to you know ferret out uh the the truth uh and facts uh, even when uh, others when when people in positions of authority want to obscure them well you know 
I think you're exactly right about that. Uh, I think you've probably seen many politicians make the mistake of uh, conflating a, a temporary convergence between the uh, reporting agenda of independent reporters and their political needs and then being stunned, surprised, and furious uh, when they had a different perspective and, and the reporters didn't follow along after them. Uh, you know, I think many politicians at their peril think that the media is, is on their team or, or not on their team. And, yeah. you know, it, it's not our job to do that. It, it, Bill Clinton is a very interesting case, right? Because, of course, uh, when he was first elected in 1992, he was young. He was the first Democrat to come into office. There's a sense that, you know, journalists were naturally, you know, cheering for... Though um, they did give him a pretty tough time in his <laughs> campaign. I mean, you know, uh, the, the Jennifer Flowers was a, a predecessor kind of scandal before... Monica Lewinsky and uh, his his Vietnam draft status became a story. So um, and then once early in his administration, you know, Whitewater. Whitewater, yes. Well, no, listen, Bill Clinton has always provided, let's say, plenty of fodder uh, for journalists. And I think your point is is well taken that, uh, uh, you know, this level of scrutiny or even arguably this kind of Washington circus that has surrounded uh, Trump from the beginning of his presidential candidacy and now his presidency, elements of it are not unique, even though I would argue that taken together, uh, what we're seeing with the presidency is 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 largely yeah. But that's a function yeah. of him, yes. Not a function. But let yes. me let me ask you. You know, I, I I I try and take a step back and ask myself. You know, because I'm old enough to remember the the evolution of all this uh, from sort of the Watergate era. And um, there was a whole generation of reporters who grew up in that era who thought, who saw what Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward did and, you know, read all the president's men and saw the movie and thought this is, this is a cool thing and so on. And now we have this ferocious competition for readers, for eyeballs, for, for viewers uh, on cable television, 24-hour cable television. I guess the question is, um, is there, you know, where's the line? And are we so consumed by that function of the, of the news media that the sort of basic coverage, uh, coverage of governance suffers? I mean, this, you know, in the last few weeks, significant decisions have been made in the, by the Trump administration, and, um, and, and yet they take a back seat to... Manafort, Cohen, uh, and all of the attendant, you know, the Mueller investigation, the president's mood. Um, is it too much? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, you know, anybody yeah. living in this news cycle can certainly agree with you that it's too much on some level. And also that Donald Trump, uh, arguably his true genius is in uh, figuring that zone, out yeah. exactly and, and understanding how uh, both to manipulate and dominate that news cycle. But but put that aside for a second, because I think underpinning it, there is there is a, an important question about uh, journalism that that is often raised and is very hard to answer. Everybody has their own answer for it. Uh, uh, how much uh, does the kind of investigative reporting, uh, you know, the sort of accountability matter, the investigations that are uh, spiraling around Donald Trump, how much do they matter? I would say uh, 
they are enormously consequential and uh, not overstated in any way uh, in that, you know, look at the presidency of Barack Obama. You know, we we didn't have uh, endless uh, corruption investigations almost from within months uh, of the presidency in the case of Trump. And I think, again, it's hard because we live in such a partisan atmosphere. I think it's very hard for people like me who come up really in, in the independent uh, press who have, you know, seen uh, politicians in both parties uh, in an unvarnished uh, and probably uh, uh non-ideological way, right? You know, you spend a little time in Washington. It's hard to, to put anyone up on a pedestal. Right. Uh, and yet, to me, that is part Who of what... Said it, but putting them under a pedestal. <laughs> under a pedestal yeah. might be uh, yeah. more... Perfect. But listen, you know, Trump, uh, that is what makes him so unique. It's partially also why I tell people uh, when they say don't pay attention to the tweets, don't pay attention to what Trump says, just pay attention to what is the actual policy in the administration. You hear that a lot, especially in the world I come from these days, foreign policy, a lot. I think that's wrong. I think that's wrong. I think that uh, Trump has shown that there's a connection, first of all, uh, between what his rhetoric is, what his tweets are, and what he wants to do. It may Mm -hmm. take him some time to actually do it, but frankly, uh, if you listen to a certain category of kind of foreign policy wise man in 2017, or you looked at Trump's tweets in 2017 when it came to foreign policy, you'd have been better informed about the direction uh, he was willing to take. I actually think one of his appeals to his supporters is that generally he, he doesn't use head feints. He, 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 he's not very subtle. He says what he, th- what he thinks at any given moment. And a lot of things that he's followed up on were things that he talked about during the campaign. In fact, his behavior is pretty consistent with his behavior in the campaign. So it, it's not as if it was a bait and switch. No, I think that's right. But again, this does go back to all your excellent questions about the role of journalism, given that I can't say that I have answers to it, but those are the things I've been thinking about. For example, on the bait and switch question, I was the editor of Politico during the yes. 2016 election cycle. Uh, my view, uh, which is not shared by everybody, but is that the problem was not that we did not have aggressive coverage of Donald Trump before the 2016 campaign. Can people really say that they went to the polls on election day and they didn't know a lot of details? Now, of course, there's still much to be known about what exactly were his campaign's dealings with Russia uh, during 2016, but uh, or his financial dealings, say, of his business uh, and Russian interests. But in general, my view is that actually Donald Trump was as thoroughly, aggressively, and well-covered uh, as any uh, candidate has been. Uh, yeah. It's also my view that, that Washington coverage, the political coverage... Country is, wasn't well-covered. It's far better than when I started out as a yeah. kid at Roll Call. I was a terrible reporter uh, compared with these young journalists today. No, there's today. a lot of They're great wonderful. journalists out there, but I do wonder, I, I, I said the country wasn't well-covered. Yes, yes. I, I do, you know, I was a young political reporter, and I covered a couple of national campaigns, and it was in an era when political reporters got in a car and drove around That's right. states and drove around the country. You know, David Broder, the you know great late uh, political uh, reporter for the Washington Post, was famous for knocking on doors all over this country. Um, and uh, you know, we're so reliant now on polls. We're very reliant, and budgets. You know, even though staffs are, 
you know, robust in some uh, some of the Washington publications and so on. There doesn't seem to be as much interest. Maybe it's because the instantaneous nature of coverage, and you have to file every day or six times a day or something. You know, you don't have the luxury of going out for two or three days and driving around or a week to find out. But whatever the reason, um, I think that there was a lot clearly things going on in this country that weren't as covered as exhaustively and as uh, thoroughly as they should have been. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to say uh, both how has the structure of national political reporting changed, but also and probably most significantly, uh, our state and local institutions of journalism uh, not only are not what they once were, they're they're dying. Uh, There's been an absolute uh, catastrophe when it comes to journalism at the state and local level, especially around politics, institutions of government, and accountability. Uh, And so that whole farm system that used to exist in American journalism has been decimated over the last decade and a half. Uh, The number of political reporters aggressively covering state capitals has withered. Uh, In many, even big cities, there's not the kind of uh, real journalism and reporting that there used to be. And so we're missing our our warning system. We're missing uh, many of the key building blocks that used to tell us what was happening in the politics around the country. And it's it's a terrible thing uh, for our democracy. Uh, yeah. It's really scary. And it is, and it's and it's not getting better. No. Uh, I mean, these, we can talk are, about it, but it's it, not it's it, not changing. Yeah, because the business model is not a good business model. The local advertising base has disappeared and. Mm-hmm. I had this discussion with the editors of the Times and Post yeah. the other day. I want to talk to you about your stint in Moscow. Mm-hmm. You and Peter Baker, your husband, went to Moscow as as co-bureau chiefs uh, in the early 2000s. You arrived at an interesting time. It was the end of the Yeltsin era, the beginning of the Putin era. He had just taken over as president of Russia. Tell me about the Vladimir Putin that you knew then and what you see today. Well, first of all, it is crazy, isn't it, that, you know, basically the two places that I've spent my career in, uh, you know, would have converged in this weird way. I mean, basically been in Washington, uh, you know, except for this stint from the end of 2000 to the end of 2004 in Russia, with some detours, by the way, after 9-11 to Afghanistan and Iraq. Iraq. And so here we are in 2018 talking about Russia and and Washington all the time in a context that yeah it's a handy little bit of knowledge you it's, have there it's unbelievable uh, yeah. it's certainly uh, let's just say not not foreordained uh, we're yeah. not <laughs> not no the result one, of any uh, trust me no one could have written this novel <laughs> no one could have written yeah. this novel so yeah. Peter and I went there I was always interested in Russia we had this wonderful opportunity uh, to become foreign correspondents for the Washington Post. Uh, they uh, paid for us to learn Russian. Uh, we, Which you had studied earlier I as had well, studied right? that in, in high school as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Always had a, a, a desire to do that. Had been inspired, uh, of course, by the great uh, Hedrick Smith and his reporting for the New York Times. And, um, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to uh, move into the apartment that David Remnick uh, uh, and his wife had occupied when he now was the, the Washington Post. editor uh, of the New Yorker, your now boss, my boss of the New Yorker. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So uh, we felt we had big shoes to fill, but actually people commiserated us uh, with us when they 
found out we were moving to Russia, even the Russia hands that we got to know, they said, well, we're so sorry, the story's over. People really thought here in Washington and, and around the world that uh, Russia had graduated to be, you know, just another normal uh, country. And that the story of the late 1980s and 1990s, this dramatic, incredible transformation, largely peaceful, from the breakup of the Soviet Union to a modern democratic Russia integrated into Western institutions, uh, that that had happened, that that was behind us, and that somehow uh, the transition even from Yeltsin to Putin was seen as a great success, never mind uh, some of the troubling signs that were there from the beginning, the fact that it was a completely undemocratic, even anti-democratic handover of power from one to the other. It was praised as a peaceful transfer of power, uh, never mind that Putin was an unknown, unqualified former KGB agent. Uh, People were really wrong about it in ways that I think was very helpful for me understanding Washington, too, to leave no. Washington in order to understand, in many ways, how our conventional wisdoms are often wrong. And they were really wrong about Vladimir Putin. Right. Well, I want to get to that in one second. I just want to ask you one thing about you, you weren't there in the 90s, but you certainly had a chance to look back when you were there. Oh, it was done in the 90s. Yeah. How, how did, if at all, but I suspect the answer is yes, how did the West, and particularly the U.S., misplay Russia in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, it, you know, there, that's the subject of many books. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, partially something we're excavating in the book we're working on now about Jim Baker, who was the Secretary of State uh, at the time, of course, of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Then uh, it was the Clinton administration that came in and, and built some of the architecture. And by the way, had some great successes. Uh, we forget that one of the uh, most successful things that occurred uh, during that time was uh, the decision to get nuclear weapons out of the yeah. former Soviet countries uh, that they were essentially left behind in, uh, and that Loose included nukes, yes. and that included uh, Ukraine. Uh, it included Kazakhstan. Uh, and, you know, people forget this because Putin has since uh, uh, invaded Ukraine. But Russia signed a treaty uh, uh, as a result of Ukraine agreeing to peacefully give up its nuclear weapons, return those to the territory of Russia. Uh, Russia said it agreed to the territorial integrity of the borders uh, of Ukraine. Uh, so that no. was explicitly uh, something agreed to when they gave up the nuclear weapons. That was negotiated uh, by the United States uh, during the Clinton administration and uh, midwifed, you could say. What about the uh, sort of... NATO's expansion is the real issue. NATO's expansion. And and yes, taking in all of the, or not all of them, but many of the uh, former Soviet bloc nations. And, uh, you know, that's one question I have. And the other is, whether we were as helpful as we should have been in the transformation of the Russian economy, uh, and could we have done more there? Well, those are two very different questions, the security piece and the Mm -hmm. economy piece. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people feel like uh, the United States did not provide the economic aid, nothing comparable to Marshall Plan-like levels at at all. Uh, That is a critique. Uh, Politically speaking, that was a non-starter for Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, the Bush administration wasn't prepared to do that, and neither was the Clinton administration. And then uh, when it comes to the security piece in NATO, you know, this was a huge debate. I was, uh, you know, just graduating from college at the time uh, and not 
participating in it, but uh, it was a fascinating almost chicken or the egg debate that resonates today. Uh, is uh, Did Russia return to a more suspicious of the West posture because it felt encircled by NATO, or was it necessary to neighbors like Poland repeatedly invaded over the centuries by Russia? Of course, uh, the first thing they wanted when they gained their uh, independence uh, uh, once again was to provide for security against the the regional power, Russia. Right. Uh, so uh, were we going to deny Poland the, the chance to, right. to join NATO? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think these are thorny issues, and the answer is, uh, you know, you, you, we have the, the uh, we have the benefit of hindsight now, <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, uh, it is, it is important to understand how we got from this hopeful period after the Soviet Union dissolved uh, with, you know, some expectation that the whole region would change and that Russia itself would change to where we what we have now, which is uh, a full-blown authoritarian state regenerated uh, the pretense of democracy, but not real democracy. They call it managed uh, democracy was the term. Uh, you know, David, I often think back to uh, a conversation I had uh, with Vladimir Putin's pollster, uh, Alexander Oslin, uh, uh, Kremlin pollster, who said to me, uh, I asked him this question more in a, the context of Russian politics, uh, but it's applicable to this question of Russia as a kind of threat to its neighbors, too. He said, you know, he saw Putin and Russia, Russian politics as like a river. And essentially Yeltsin and this sort of turn toward the West, he saw in the context of essentially trying to artificially turn the direction of the river. Uh, did Vladimir Putin create uh, an authoritarian state uh, from scratch? No. He, you know, in the oh, yeah. view of his pollster, he allowed the river uh, to be released of its artificial blocks and to flow with the river. He gave the Russian people what they wanted in this view of things. <coughs> now, that's a very essentialist view of Russians. You know, the idea, I, do, I don't accept it, by the way, uh, the idea that uh, Russians aren't suited to democracy. You, th you hear things like this. I think that's claptrap, but it's certainly part of the narrative uh, that has been told to Russians about themselves. It's their story uh, uh, of themselves, at least for a part of the Russian population. Yeah, and the stories that are being told are being told by a pretty strictly controlled Absolutely. media uh, environment. It speaks to the the value in any democracy. And of a, by the way, that's the press. first thing that uh, authoritarians and would-be authoritarians do is they attack the press and they take it over. And that's something that I saw happen firsthand in Moscow in 2001. And it has absolutely influenced my views uh, about uh, democracy and uh, authoritarian leaders ever since. You were one of the first American reporters to uh, to to be in a press conference or a press setting with Putin after he, uh, after you arrived, after he became president. And you, you had uh, something of a confrontation uh, with him. T tell me about that. Well, it was in uh, uh, early summer, not quite summer, early June of 2001, after Vladimir Putin's first summit meeting 
with uh, George W. Bush. It didn't go as well uh, as Donald Trump told us his uh, Helsinki summit meeting with Vladimir Putin went. Uh, but still, uh, you remember George W. Bush came out and he said he looked, looked into Putin's in his, soul and yeah, he was so. a man that we could do business with. And Putin also felt good about that meeting. And so he summoned the American press corps, uh, I think only a week or so later, to the Kremlin for the first time he was agreeing to meet uh, American journalists in a, in a roundtable setting. So there was about, I don't know, uh, less than a dozen American correspondents <coughs> there. Uh, and I went there as the post co-bureau chief, and uh, it was vintage Putin. Uh, we were summoned to the Kremlin early evening. He kept us waiting for uh, what seemed like several hours. As I recall it, uh, we didn't even start this uh, press conference until close to 9 o'clock and didn't leave until close to midnight. Why? Putin was early in his tenure. And remember, he was a young, untested political figure wanted from the KGB. Chops, he huh? wanted to show us that he knew what he was talking about. The exact opposite in many ways, stylistically, of Donald Trump, even though you could argue there are some interesting convergences in their style of politics. Uh, but in as a person, right, he's the guy who's memorized the briefing books, who's going to spout facts and figures at you uh, all day long. And in that sense, very different than Donald Trump, very eager to prove and to show that he was in command of the information, even on subjects like the economy, where he didn't know very much. We were going around the table, and I was towards the end of this this circular table in the Kremlin library. And when it got to me, no one had asked President Putin yet about the war in Chechnya, which was in many ways a very brutal war, the second war uh, against the breakaway uh, Republic of Chechnya that Russia had fought. Arguably, it was what helped bring Putin to political power, being fought with enormous, <coughs> terrible human rights abuses. At the time, the United States was very critical uh, of those human rights abuses. And I felt that uh, this was a subject we uh, American journalists couldn't, uh, you know, let go unmentioned in our first press conference with Putin. Up till then, he'd been like very technocratic, very even keeled, even very friendly to the journalists. So and how do you react His to your tone question? and temper, his demeanor, even his facial demeanor changed. Uh, and he became bitter, sarcastic, biting uh, in a way that uh, he often did when, when asked about Chechnya. He once, uh, before that, he had famously said he was going to um, wipe out the Chechen rebels in the outhouse uh, using a barnyard epithet uh, that doesn't translate easily from Russian to English, but suffice it to say, uh, I my Russian was never good enough to understand that kind of language. <laughs> uh, but uh, he he was very ill-tempered when it came to this issue. Tough guy swagger mm -hmm. came out in a way that replaced the KGB apparatchik. Yeah. And he basically ranted at me, and it was very sort of... You could imagine him saying something like that today. You could imagine Donald Trump saying his own Trumpian version of it today. What do you want me to do? T sit down and talk about the Bible with these, uh, you know, Islamic terrorists... Uh, which is what he called them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, why are you talking to me about human rights, essentially? Uh, these are brutal people. You Americans are soft. You don't really understand, essentially, this clash of civilizations that's taking place. And that was a very consistent early theme of Putin's and I think an early warning sign of the kind of leader he would become. You, uh, uh, we're going to get back to this because it obviously has some implications for where we are in the world and in our own politics right now. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about your various editorial uh, 
stages. You, you had a, a stint as the national editor at the Post, uh, and then and that that was a kind of tumultuous deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, uh, I won't ask about the details of that, but just in the interest of time. But you went on to Foreign Policy magazine, and kind of transformed it. I mean, it was another sort of startup, a venerable publication that you treated as kind of a startup, and you turned it into a modern uh, sort of 20, 21st century uh, news outlet or, or publication. Uh, tell me a little bit about that, because you seem to enjoy that, uh, and you've seemed to be able, you've translated uh, in several different venues. Um, traditional journalism into a modern template. Well, you're right. I've been incredibly lucky. Uh, at, you know, I've also seen the, the tumult and the upheaval of uh, journalism at first hand over the last decade and a half since we've been back from Russia and, and Afghanistan as foreign correspondents. I've mostly spent that period of time, as you said, as an editor and in different editorial roles. Uh, and this, of course, has been the exact period when, you know, the dis- disruption of the Internet and social media and all the rest has really has changed a profession that up until then was pretty stodgy, pretty uh, uh, uncreative. You know, the, the, the journalism itself was interesting, but the forms by which we produced it, you know, were pretty similar from when I graduated from college until maybe the last decade. It didn't change as much as it has over the last decade. It's been kind of a revolution. Uh, so you brought a bunch of incisive bloggers into the into foreign policy. Yeah, no, I think my idea was that uh, foreign policy could be treated as a startup. Uh, I never understood <laughs> why uh, those old sort of journals had made the world into you know a boring place. That was our joke uh, when uh, we were lucky enough. Don Graham, at the time still the owner and publisher of the Post, uh, purchased foreign policy. Let me go work there uh, uh, as an editor, and I sort of created this modern daily website along with uh, this print magazine. It, it, that was our joke, right? You know, the world is not a boring place. You're reading about it doesn't need to be either. And, you know, now you you look at how we're able to get so much more and better information, right? It, it, no. I always, up until the Trump 2016 election, I really have always been such a techno-optimist, if you will. Uh, You know, I I just believe, certainly, if you were a journalist like me, you know, you're a believer in the value of information in facts in and of themselves playing a role and being important to our democracy. So the idea that this is a golden age of information, how could that be a bad thing? Uh, You know, we've now spent the last few years really dwelling on the the dark side (laughs) of uh, uh, that information revolution. But I, I felt that foreign policy is a great example of that. Yeah, uh, and you you also started covering not just foreign policy, but the whole foreign policy establishment um, in a way that sort of animated it, uh, real breathing, living people and actors. And uh, so, um, and then you moved on to Politico. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Politico, when it, when it first emerged, was sort of scoffed at by traditional journalists. In the period that you were there, first in starting their magazine, and then in a, during for a period as editor, it really exploded um, and uh, became something more than another roll call, another 
uh, tell me about that. I mean, you had well, how big was Politico when you left there in terms of the number of journalists and so on? Well, it's, it is. It's one of the biggest newsrooms, uh, of course, covering Washington, uh, if not the biggest in some ways, aside from uh, the Washington Post itself. Uh, there are there were uh, more than 200 journalists uh, covering policy and politics when when I left Politico. I don't know the current number right now, but, uh, you know, obviously I went there, the chance to start a magazine from scratch, especially one devoted uh, to uh, politics and, and policy was a great opportunity. That was also in print and online. And again, to challenge this notion that people had about Politico as just sort of quick breaking, you know, insider really tidbits. Was what, and it, what it was, was that, you know, sort of absolutely break, sort of breaking news, gossip, tidbits, I always thought that was kind of hilarious, right? The idea that, uh, you know, do you only consume one kind of news about Washington? Do you, you know, imagine what uh, kind of readers and, and people we would be if all we uh, consumed were breaking news alerts from the AP. <laughs> uh, and we, you know, that, of course, uh, trying to understand Washington, if your business is politics, if your business is Washington, you want to know as much about it in as many different ways as possible. And I found that to be the case when we started the magazine. Our very first uh, issue was a 7,000-word cover story inside uh, the dysfunctions and uh, quirks of the Obama cabinet as a way of looking at the Obama presidency. And, you know, of course, guess what? The core political junkies who had been the initial audience for Politico, joined, of course, by millions of other readers around the country and around the world. But the Washington junkies, did they not like that because it wasn't little right. bits and pieces? Of course not. They loved it. They, you know, their subject is Washington and they want to understand it and unpack it in as many ways as possible. And you stayed, you became the editor, as I mentioned. There too, a lot of wrenching change, a lot of... Uh, tell me about the challenges of, of running an organization like that. Well, I think, you know, you just had this really fascinating conversation with, with Marty Barron and, and mm -hmm. Dean Baquet that, that gets at some of, uh, you know, the, the nature of being an editor in uh, this world is, is utterly different in, in, in many respects from what it was uh, in 19... 50 or 1975 or even 1985. Uh, there's a state of permanent change and disruption to even the very forms of our journalism. Uh, that, uh, especially when you combine it with uncertain and perilous economics, right? You you're, have anxiety levels always high uh, in, in a newsroom. Uh, off the charts as people don't understand what their jobs are even going to be uh, a few years from now. Uh, that's enormously creative and stimulating, uh, but it's, it's, it's a much more competitive uh, universe, first of all, that any editor operates in. I like that aspect of it. Uh, I like the strategic aspect of it. Uh, startups can be a huge challenge, even if they're startups plus seven years. Uh, and I think uh, that is the grueling part of these jobs for, for any of these people. I mean, you know, Marty Barron has run successfully. This is now his third newsroom. I, you know, he must have unbelievable uh, energy because essentially parts of the Washington Post, not all of it, are, are, are now entrepreneurial startups yeah. uh, with all that that entails uh, from that Silicon Valley culture. Uh, it's very different than the traditional, uh, almost like a factory 
factory-like uh, newsroom that you probably experienced in the Chicago Tribune. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I think that for good and bad. I yeah. mean, I think in some ways it's the most robust news environment yeah. of my it's lifetime. It's so stimulating, but it's, it, it's exhausting. It's exhausting, and it also, I mean, there, there are sacrifices, and I talked about it with those, those guys, with Barron and Baquet, in terms of intro, in, in reflection, in terms of the time to really think things through. I think it's much tougher to be an editor today than ever before just because of the compression of time and the incredible competition. So, you know, you're, 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 there are no, new, there are no uh, kind of news cycles. I mean, you're just, you get stories and you, and you have to go because someone else is going or you, you, know, you feel that competitive pressure and, and, and you have to react to other people's breaking stories in real time. It's, it's, it's hard. When I came back to politics, because in some ways, you know, foreign policy was a very, you know, entrepreneurial challenge. I loved that. And I loved learning uh, in, in a way. It was, it was the most learning I've ever done in a journalism job. Uh, but so coming to Politico, starting Politico magazine, coming back to politics, having started my career at Roll Call and, and on Capitol Hill so many years before and, and covering campaigns, I found it very dispiriting. And then the whole 2000 16 election cycle played out you know it was both a great story but it wasn't an invigorating exciting you know version of a great story and maybe it's just because I wasn't you know 23 years old anymore but but I found it very dispiriting that that what politics has become in many ways is this ceaseless endless uh, drumbeat of uh, uh, negativity and divisiveness. Uh, Peter and I had this idea in our heads that we we're going to become foreign correspondents. Again, uh, we wanted our son to have a little bit of the experience that we had had in Russia. Yeah. And we decided after the 2016 election that we were going to move to the Middle East for a few years before our son entered high school. Uh, and yeah, but the New York Times had a different idea. Yeah, so we uh, actually did move to Jerusalem. Peter, uh, the opportunity came up, and he became the Jerusalem bureau chief for the, Was- for the New York Times. He started work there in August of 2016. My son started school there. Uh, I was coming back and forth, still overseeing Politico's coverage through November 2016. Uh, and then we planned to live there for three years, and then come back here. Uh, and uh, I would say it wasn't that the New York Times had a different idea. It was more that uh, <laughs> uh, world events had a different idea. Well, it's it's to Peter's credit, though, that, I mean, Peter's covered two administrations, three administrations. He covered yeah, the second Bill, term of Bill Clinton, too. And, and, and Bush and Obama. And I think that kind of institutional memory is sort of invaluable. And they recognize that. I'm sure he probably recognized that, too. And it was the biggest story uh, and it is the biggest story on the planet. So let's go go to that. You moved over to the New Yorker. You're writing really, really wonderful, uh, incisive commentary for the for the New Yorker uh, now. Um, and uh, and it, as you said earlier, it kind of brings your two worlds together. How how do you view this story, this Russia story? Uh, you know, Trump is dismissive of it. Russia hands I talk to say, you know what, um, this is kind of how Russia operates, compromising people get, and so on. Um, 
I mean, how are you viewing this through your eyes and your experience as this story unfolds? Well, first of all, I think it has been an incredible opportunity to not only write for The New Yorker, uh, but also to write this weekly letter from Trump's Washington, is what we're calling it. And uh, at the very beginning of the Trump administration, when uh, we decided, you know, to come back uh, from our board of Jerusalem stint. In my case, it was after three weeks <laughs> yes. uh, uh, after the election. Um, you know, I think there was really a choice about uh, what should I do? And I already had decided to go back to writing. And I thought, you know, there's no bigger story on the planet. This, uh, as much as I'm interested in Turkey or Venezuela, you know, the United States and Washington, D.C. right now is the epicenter of global instability, as Strobe Talbot put it to me in one of my podcasts last year. Uh, and, you know, this is the biggest not only foreign policy, but domestic policy, politics story in the world today. And so it was almost like, okay, to have this opportunity week in and week out to write a chronicle uh, that almost sort of looks as directly at the eclipse <laughs> as I can each week. And to write it down, uh, what would you want to read 20 years from now? I figure that people are going to say to us, wait a minute, you know, what was that like when Donald Trump was president? And, you know, there's an overwhelming flow. You can't reread uh, every New York Times article or, you know, everything that's on the website or everything that's on Twitter. Uh, how could I create something each week uh, that taken together would tell the story. One of the first things I did was actually read Elizabeth Drew's Washington Journal, which mm-hmm. is her book out of her weekly New Yorker letter from Washington column that she wrote in that fateful Watergate year yeah, of 1974. She's still around. Still around uh, she's been very helpful to me. Uh, absolutely. And she's she's helped inform my view of not just Nixon, but also of Trump. But I did, I reread that starting like last February, before the Mueller investigation, yeah. before any of this. Uh, and, you know, I would say a couple things to your question about Trump and Russia and how to think about the Russiagate investigation. First of all, obviously, I don't know, and you don't know uh, what Mueller will find. We'll wait and see. That being said, the frame I've had about Trump from the beginning is is that many of these things, uh, when it comes to Russia or even how he's handled uh, the office of the presidency, are shocking but not necessarily surprising. Will you really be surprised if the independent counsel, the special counsel's office comes out and tells us that Trump uh, was dealing extensively with uh, Russian business people, for example, in his business, and that's why he withheld his tax return? No, you won't be surprised, but there still might be shocking revelations contained within it. So I don't know, uh, but I'm fully prepared uh, for shocking uh, revelations that nonetheless will not fundamentally change the frame around how we view Trump, first of all. Second of all, I worried and I actually wrote a piece uh, in February of 2017, right after Trump was elected for the New York Times Sunday Review section, uh, uh, comparing Trump and Putin, not when it comes to what alliance they did or didn't have in 2016, but comparing them as, as authoritarian leaders. Mm-hmm. I do think that Uh, whatever we ultimately learn about the Trump campaign and its dealings with Russia. And we've already learned an enormous amount since I wrote that in February 2017. Things that I I never thought we would learn about the Trump Tower meeting, for example. Uh, But even back then, what was already apparent was that Trump was really our first, in my view, authoritarian-minded 
president of the United States and that his uh, disdain for the basic institutions of a democratic government uh, combined with his ignorance about uh, how our government actually works uh, would would act in a in a toxic and uh, not merely disruptive way on on Washington, not just in other words shaking things up for the sake right. of shaking things up, but actually to be more of a systematic attack on the institutions of democracy and and talking about what did that look like. For example, uh, the first thing that we saw Putin do when we lived in Moscow was to take over NTV, the only independent television network that had ever existed in Russia. That's what an authoritarian, unchecked by institutions, can do. Now Trump has been checked in many ways uh, by our institutions, uh, but he has not been checkmated. Uh, yeah. His takeover of the Republican Party uh, probably has surprised uh, many people in its both speed and uh, relative thor- thoroughness, for example. Uh, yeah. So uh, that's something that's always worried me, regardless of the outcome yeah. uh, of the Mueller investigation. Well, that you mentioned that June sixth meeting. Um, what 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 thoughts do you have on that? Knowing what you know about how Putin operates and how much the Magnitsky Act, that was the subject of that meeting, is irksome to him. Well, that's right. The Trump Tower meeting, remember back when that first uh, became public, it was also in the context of Trump's extraordinary May of 2017, right, where he sets in motion, uh, you know, the events that we're still living with right now, the investigation by firing the director Mm -hmm. of the FBI in what appears to be uh, an effort to halt or uh, mitigate the investigation of him and his campaign and his top advisors. And he admitted to that publicly, by the way, in that Lester Holt interview. Again, and said as much apparently to the to uh, the ambassador and to the foreign minister of Russia. That's right. And I think that, you know, again, so we've known since last year, facts that argue toward a pattern of obstruction and undermining an ongoing investigation of himself and those close to him. But the June 6th meeting uh, goes more to collusion. Well, exactly. So what I was going to say was, so this is happening in the context where this this obstruction is playing out in public in real time, as if the Nixon tapes were being broadcast live on the evening news, as opposed to being secretive and only released years later. Number one, this pattern of what appears to be obstructive behavior is occurring also at the moment they're trying to suppress and uh, ultimately are unsuccessful in suppressing the information about the Trump Tower meeting, which comes out at the exact same moment. Uh, and, and again, it suggests there's a connection. In other words, he's trying to obstruct it or to cover it up because he doesn't want us to know this information, which appears to be his own son, uh, his son-in-law, and the campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, meeting with uh, a Russian who, there are emails saying, comes bearing gifts, the gift of research uh, to Hillary as part of its ongoing campaign to support your dad, is what they tell Donald Trump Jr. Again, I find this to be what's already known publicly uh, to be certainly evidence uh, uh, of knowledge and connections between uh, the Russian government's efforts on Trump's behalf and the Trump campaign. But what, I, but what I'm interested in asking you is based on what you know of the Rus- of Putin yes. and the Russians, 
is this something that is consistent with, uh, with what they might attempt to do? I mean, we know yes. that they tried to of influence the election. So, so I think what we've seen that struck me as very consistent with the Russia that I knew and the way politics is played there is, number one, this notion of compromise. Uh, compromise uh, and the idea that everything can be, information can be bought, paid for, and used in politics uh, is at the core of the uh, kind of dirty politics of the the post-Soviet system as it emerged. And there was a sense that this it, it applied in business as well as in politics. Uh, I've spoken with, you know, former very senior U.S. officials who say it would have been routine uh, for uh, Putin's government to uh, uh, acquire compromise on any, you know, high-ranking Americans who might be doing business in the United, uh, in Russia, uh, and that would certainly cover a figure like Donald Trump, who was so eager to meet with Putin, even when he was, you know, putting on the Miss Universe mm-hmm. pageant there. So number one, this pattern of compromise, using information to obtain or to wield political power or power over others. Uh, number two, uh, the idea uh, that there are things to be traded. The idea that the Russian government reached out in multiple different ways using different kinds of intermediaries to the Trump campaign in 2016, you know, as if they were probing and probing and probing, trying to figure out, well, who's this George Papadopoulos guy? Mm -hmm. You know, is he the right figure? Okay, well, maybe Jared Kushner uh, is a better interlocutor. Maybe Donald Trump is a better, Junior is a better interlocutor. So that is absolutely consistent uh, with it. And, And again, remember, Putin is a man of the KGB, and his view of Western politics has always been colored by that. So he sees things in terms of secret operations, in terms of uh, conspiracies and the like. And so the way, the evidence that we've heard so far about the Trump Tower meeting is completely consistent with uh, how he's invented Russian politics in his own image. I can't let you go without asking you about this book that you and Peter are working on. You've you've written others, uh, some together. Uh, but uh, about about Jim Baker, uh, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury under Ronald Reagan, and as I, you and I were discussing before we started rolling, uh, one of the great political operatives of all time, though he doesn't really appreciate uh, being identified as such as much as being identified as a statesman, as a, a man of government. So I think our... You're exactly right about, first of all, uh, uh, Baker's reticence uh, to a certain extent at being seen as a political figure. He uh, obviously was a very successful secretary of state at an uh, enormously consequential period uh, during the unraveling of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc uh, and the first Gulf War in Kuwait. He assembled that coalition along with his close friend George H.W. Bush. He was a successful Secretary of the Treasury, which is remarkable. He was considered the gold standard of White House chiefs of staff in many ways. Uh, Democrats as well as Republicans have long sought his counsel on how to successfully run a White House uh, in almost direct contrast, I should say, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> between oh, yeah. this, this White House and its multiple uh, chiefs of staff uh, who seem to have ignored uh, uh, his advice. But Interestingly, that was what attracted, I think, Peter and I to Baker as a subject for a biography. Was Peter often says, it's like, imagine if you rolled up Karl Rove and Henry Kissinger in one. You couldn't conceive of somebody being both the David Axelrod, uh, you know, the political uh, mastermind behind a, a big, complicated national presidential campaign, and 
also uh, reinventing the the global world order at a time of enormous international upheaval. It just those things have. Uh, moved on. In some ways, we're beyond the age of the brilliant generalist, and yet he managed to be very successful in both of those. I also think it goes to your point about, you know, that period of time 25, 30 years ago when it was this very optimistic moment, the, the unraveling of the Soviet Union. I was lucky enough to graduate from college into almost the mirror inverse of, you know, what I imagine young people are graduating today uh, in, in this time of very chaotic, divisive, angry politics, not only here in the U.S., but in Europe, uh, a sense of economic dislocation and anxiety. It was the opposite for mm-hmm. us, right? You know, I was a class of 1990 in college. The democracy seemed to have won. Uh, people were becoming free. Uh, you know, the Internet promised great new things and none of the dystopian uh, uh, things and that Baker we talk about right now. in the middle of that. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. we saw the frame around this book as sort of the man who ran Washington when Washington ran the world. Interesting. That was our idea. Well, we look forward to it. <laughs> so do I. Yeah. <laughs> Susan Glasser, thank you so much. Uh, and look look for your stuff in The New Yorker. It's always good. Thank you so much, David. It's really wonderful to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.